0: Go on to hear the story of some new sinners that Jesus received into his church in the book of Acts chapter 10. Now the story of Cornelius conversion, both he and his household under the preaching of Peter. Acts chapter 10 verse 24. And hear God's word. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in in the sight of God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism, which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but... To witnesses chosen before God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the account which we have of the gospel going forth to the Gentiles, reaching so far into the world and and into history that it has reached even us. We praise you, O God, as Gentiles who were saved and brought in, we were grafted in as wild branches, even as the natural branches were cut out. Amazing to see this play out in the book of Acts. We wonder at your providence and at your purposes We praise you, O God, for it, and we ask you that through this passage you might open up to us the very privileges which we now enjoy. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we find ourselves mid-narrative. This is a a passage which, uh, as I said, uh, Luke is hes relishing. He's taking his time with it. In fact, for our purposes, it will take three sermons to cover the account of the conversion of Cornelius, this fourth conversion in these series of conversions though uh remember when every time i say that the first was a false conversion that of simon simon magnus Uh, but the following three that of the ethiopian that of uh, that of saul and then that of cornelius were genuine well the reason that luke was taking his time with this was because for him this was such a Monumental point in redemptive history and God was revealing things to the church then, which as I just said in my prayer, the church is even to this day still enjoying. He was grafting in those who were not natural branches, the Gentiles. Well, uh, since we are mid narrative, uh, let me try to basically uh, to basically uh, give a portrait of the sequence of events, what happens occurs in four days. The first day, Cornelius sees the vision. That's the beginning of chapter 10, which we read a little earlier on in the service. And he sends his men uh, to to retrieve Peter and bring him back to his house. The next day, so this is day two, Peter has his vision, which we considered last time, and the men arrive. And they stay the night on day three, they all set out on their journey. So now we've arrived at verse 24, along with other men, six men that Peter brings with him. Meanwhile, Cornelius, in anticipation of their arrival, gathers family and friends. Day four, uh, the company arrives and they're greeted by this crowd at home, the home of Cornelius. And we have an account of the first interaction between Peter and Cornelius Uh, It reminds us of John and the angel in Revelation. Cornelius falls uh, down before him, and that, that was an important learning moment. There was a lot of learning that was going on in the church in those days, just as there are or there is today. What we see is, on the one hand, that Cornelius esteemed Peter too greatly. And Peter has to remind him that God is no respecter of persons, which not only included Cornelius, but it included Peter himself. There really are there really are just Christians in the kingdom of God. But at the same time, this truth also made Peter realize uh, that there should be no barrier between these two men enjoying Christian fellowship. And so while it was wrong for Cornelius to esteem Peter too greatly, it also was wrong for Peter, a Jew, to disregard this Gentile who soon would place his faith in Jesus Christ. And so Peter says to him in verses twenty eight and twenty nine, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. You see, he's learning. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? Well, you see. Already, the gospel was abolishing distinctions, the distinctions which existed between these two men. It put these two men on a par with one another, which neither was prepared to see at first until God made him see it. Well, Peter asks him the question. He says, why did you send for me? And well, Cornelius recounts his vision, which matches the account that we have at the beginning of the chapter. And following that, we have Peter preaching to this household, in verses 34 to the end of the chapter, this crowd which has gathered. And when you think about the importance of this sermon, I want you to think about the importance of another sermon that Peter gave, namely the sermon which he gave at Pentecost. Well, the first thing that I want to stress about this is the central truth which had gripped Peter and which uh, which he sought to show To these Gentiles it was something he came to see and now that he was eager to share with them and that central truth is this which he states in verse 34 and that is God shows no partiality God is not a respecter of persons if the church were to grow as God envisioned this was a church uh, or a truth rather that the apostles must see clearly for themselves it was a truth we'll see in the next sermon that the saints in Jerusalem needed to see And it was a truth that the church for many, many more chapters. In fact, the duration of the New Testament is struggling to grasp. And might I even say even to this day. Well, that's how he states it in verse. 30, uh, 34, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. So he states it a little differently in verse 28, but it's the same truth. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. That's. Well, that's the same idea. There's no real difference between men, certainly men who have become Christians. Well, that leads me to make uh, something of an extended comment upon this truth. This is a truth which, you know, I'm sure you've heard it many times, uh, which was a favorite of the Apostle Paul's. In fact, we'll see it very soon in Romans. He's beginning to make this point in chapter 10. And 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 in uh, just a few verses, we'll see him saying, so I think in two sermons, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. And, and he says it in an even broader sense in other passages, man or woman, slave or free. No distinction. The gospel, in a sense, abolishes all distinctions. This was a truth which the apostle gloried in. As a Jew who hated Christ, yet who became a Christian, And then who evangelized the Gentiles. You can understand why this was such a precious truth to him. But what I am seeking to do at this moment is to interact with the way that this truth has been uh, so tragically abused. And I'm especially referring to uh, so much of uh, the liberal thought in the church today, uh, seizing upon this idea and utterly abusing it. I have heard this repeatedly uh, by our, let us call them, opponents. In the church, and I imagine that you have as well. And so let me try to deal with this. In, in favor, let me be clear of, of homosexuals being brought into the church or tran, tran, transsexuals being brought into the church. That's especially what I have in view. This is their favorite verse, or, or their favorite idea, rather. Well, let us be clear the truth is not that the gospel actually obliterates. The natural differences between men in the case of our passage, a Jew and a Gentile, so as to make them non-existent or ir- irrelevant. What the gospel does is to say whatever differences there are, these things do not stand in the way of salvation. They're not barriers anymore. The the, the dividing uh, wall has been broken down. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. And so it works out like this. If we think about, uh, well, different genders. And this was. Of course, very scandalous in the first century. Uh, it, a woman may be saved in just the same way as a man. There is no difference. Or uh, in a modern context, I could say a black man or a white man. They're saved in exactly the same way. The same gospel is, or the gospel is the same gospel for all. And that's the truth that the Apostle Paul gloried in. You don't preach a different gospel to different people. All are saved in exactly the same way. And that is by placing their faith in Jesus Christ you can take any natural characteristic you could possibly think of or even social differences and you won't be able to find one that alters this truth in any way it is the same gospel for all and each having professed it is to be accepted that's the truth well this is what our opponents are saying. When they take this idea and they seize upon it, they say, well, because there's n- neither male nor uh, female in the kingdom of God. Well, that means that uh, gender is a fluid idea. It doesn't matter at all. Straight people are accepted. Gay people are accepted. Trans are accepted just as they are. And so the idea is God accepts us just as we are. And that therefore, we all have the same standing in the church. Do you see the subtle error? The actual teaching is whatever is true of you now, and yes, I would say this to a trans person or a gay person, whatever is true of you now, the gospel can save you. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who have faith in Jesus Christ. But the point of the gospel is not to affirm a person's false view of himself or his sin. The point of the gospel is to say even you might be saved, even the worst. But if a man is really saved by the gospel, to take the example of the homosexual, he will be homosexual no more. He'll be a new creation in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And so that leads to another difference. Both Peter and Paul are talking about natural characteristics, not sinful lifestyles. Again, notice the subtle error. You cannot seize upon this truth and then uh, attach sinful lifestyles to it. That is not the point at all. The effect of the gospel has nothing to do with what a man is by nature. Again, that's the real point. A man is still a man when he's saved, but he's saved as a man. Or a woman is still a woman while she's saved as a woman. A Jew is still a Jew. These things do not stand in the way. In that sense, they don't make the slightest difference at all. But you cannot, and let me underline this very strongly, you cannot apply the same thought to sin. You cannot say a gay person is still gay because, after all, it doesn't matter once he is saved. God accepts all sorts of people. No, that is to deny the effect of the gospel. You see, a man who's saved is still a man. That's very different than saying a man who's leading a life of sin is still leading a life of sin. No, the effect of the gospel is not to make him not a man anymore, but it is to make him a Christian. It is to lead him out of his life of sin. Understand the difference. I I know that you do, but because these things have become so prevalent, we have to deal with them. You cannot apply these passages to that situation if you want to know how the Apostle Paul felt about homosexuality, for instance, you don't go to Acts chapter 10 or uh, uh, to Galatians or to Romans chapter 10. Uh, you can find his opinions, his inspired opinions in other places like 1 Corinthians chapter six or in Galatians, that same book, but a different place. And there he's saying, well, this is what you once did. But don't you know, these people don't inherit the kingdom of God. But look how God has delivered you from these things. It's clear that once a man is saved, he practices these things no more. Well, having dealt with the error, let us seize upon the truth rightly. The truth means this. The truth means that a man like Peter, who was a Jew, might go into the house of a Gentile and he might preach to him. And you can imagine how many uh, applications that has for us today. And and the implications certainly it has for worldwide missions. That's the right application. You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to accept the custom of the Jews. This is just the application of what we considered this morning. You don't have to go on some uh, strange quest or journey. You might be saved just as you are, right where you are. This is what Peter was beginning to see. The truth meant that he should... And that he could preach to these men in the home of Cornelius. And having done so. That just the moment they placed their faith in Jesus Christ. He a Jew should be prepared to accept these Gentiles into full Christian fellowship. They were to be received in the church. That's the truth. They were to stand on equal footing now. That was the work that God was doing. And that's the work that God is still doing. That's the true effect of the gospel. That's the true truth that we should all seize upon. What matters is not what a man is by birth. What matters is whether he has faith. Well, in another way, the Apostle James uh, goes on to speak of this in his letter how there are not classes of people in the church. He's just taking the same truth and he says, well, you know, it is possible that we will continue uh, to make distinctions in the church. And that is the sin of favoritism. God shows no partiality, but the truth is sometimes we do. Not in the matter of salvation, but in the matter of church membership. Well, that's a very sinful thing to do. The truth is, as God was showing Peter and was showing Cornelius... And which the church needs to see in every age is that everything about the gospel mitigates against this idea of favoritism. Favoritism in the church. And so James says something like this. You have a very rich and important person come into the church and you show him special favors because after all, he's a very rich and important person. I've even heard of churches uh, of uh, honoring them publicly from the pulpit. We have a very important person in the church today. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. But there's other ways that you could do that. What James is saying is you're sinning. This is actually sin. Uh, Corinth, in Corinthians, or in Corinth, I mean, they were doing something very similar. They were making distinctions at the table. The rich were filling their bell- bellies. The poor were going hungry. Do you not have homes in which to eat your food? Paul says they were making distinctions. Why is this so sinful in the church that Christ is building? Well, it's because it ignores what is true of God in his dealing with us. Here's the central truth. I'll state it again. In truth, I perceive Peter says God shows no partiality. That's the truth we need to grasp upon. To whom does he not show partiality? To those who are saved, to those who call upon the Lord Jesus Christian people. Now, when God does that, when He brings people into the church, He's not making distinctions. He's not saying, here are my favorite Christians and here are the rest. He's not showing partiality. Or, or when He saves one and not another, He's not saying, well, you know, I like this man so much more than the other. That's why I save him. No. When we, uh, wh- when we ask the question, why does He save one and not another? We are left with a mystery, an un- unresolved mystery, but we cannot say it's because of this Principle of partiality, if anything, with God, Paul says, you know, the Lord tends to save the least of these, not the great and the mighty. And so, if anything, it's the opposite with God. Or to imagine somehow within the church that he makes distinctions among those whom he saved. Now, there is one distinction. Let me be clear. In one sense, the church is not this grand egalitarian society, and that is the sense in which we have officers. There are clear lines of distinction. There is a hierarchy in the church with respect to officers. But that isn't the point here. The question is, who may become a member? Who may be baptized? Who may enjoy the privileges and, yes, the duties of Christian fellowship? The answer is anyone. Anyone who has faith. And it is God himself who is doing this. It's God himself who is gathering all types of people into the church. And it's our duty to recognize that. Not to place unnecessary barriers within the church to Christian harmony and Christian fellowship. Here is the doctrine, you might say, of the union and communion of the saints. Not only with their savior, but with one another. And there really ought to be no distinctions, no barriers. The truth is, which we all ought to recognize... Is that the gospel, just as the law, but I'm saying the gospel actually, is the great leveling force in mankind. It reduces all to the same footing, and it's that of sinners who are saved by grace. This is a marvel. It's a marvel even to the angels that we should be seated with Christ in the heavenlies. There's our great distinction, but that's the distinction of everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. And the apostle Paul says, here's another favorite truth he loves to preach That by grace you've been saved, not of yourselves, but by faith, Therefore, not of works. Therefore, boasting is excluded. Again and again, he says it. You see, I don't boast in myself. I don't boast in you. I boast in God's grace. That's the point. That's the point. I boast in God's grace in saving me. I boast in God's grace in saving you. And that's what the church is. But we should also see in terms of that truth, God shows no partiality. How the gospel has the potency to break long-held traditions. This is something that we see in the gospels. The gospel is breaking down the traditions of the Jews. We, We are already beginning to see it in Acts. Now I'm talking about traditions that have, you should know me well enough to know I'm not against tradition. But I am against tradition that has no warrant in God's word. And that's what the gospel breaks down. It breaks down the kind of tradition uh, which Jesus confronted in the gospels. He says, well, do you hold fast to your traditions and place them in place of the commands of God? I wonder if this is something that's happened in your own life. Have you experienced this wonderful discovery, the freedom that the gospel brings Freedom from what? You know, we like to talk about Christian liberty. What are we talking about? We're talking about freedom from the doctrines and commandments of men. In many ways, you could say that's what the Reformation was all about. Martin Luther wrote of the Babylonian captivity of the church. And what was it Christ was freeing the church from through the reformers? Well, it was just the same thing that he was doing through the apostles, from the doctrines and commandments of men, which man had placed In place of the commands of God. Just as soon as you realize this. You experience a wonderful freedom. I'm no longer bound to this idea. This thing is no longer considered taboo. Not by Christian people. When when Peter says by the way. I don't know what you have in your translation. New King James. You know how unlawful it is. Well really what he's saying is something like you know how this idea is taboo it's it, taboo it is it is uh unbecoming it's not allowed it's unconventional and yet peter could say that the gospel broke down this convention because this convention did not have the warrant of god's word and now i'm no longer bound by it i no longer keep it it no longer holds me back why because it was never a matter of god's law and how liberating that can be there was another I I, I find I'm speaking of Luther a lot today, but Luther wrote another work in that same year, 1520, The Freedom of the Christian Man. And this is something Luther himself was glorying in. It's something that Peter was glorying in. Do Do you sense that when he says, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality? You see, God was freeing Peter, not just Cornelius, but Peter. And it's something he's been doing ever since. He's been freeing us from the shackles Of man-made tradition. He did it for Peter. He did it for Martin Luther. He did it for Paul. He did it for me. And uh, I pray that he'll do it for you. And that the Christian life will be this. Well this ever unfolding discovery of God's. uh, Of God's. Freeing us in this regard. Well. Having said those things about the central truth. The the next thing I want to consider is the sermon that Peter preaches. As another sample of apostolic preaching. And as ever, we have just a summary, beginning in verse 34. It's briefer than earlier sermons, such as we have in Acts chapter 2. But the main features are the same. You can understand that Luke wanted us to see the basic features of apostolic preaching were always the same, without feeling always the need to recount the same amount of material in each. But certainly we get the sense this was a very similar uh, sermon as uh, that which he preached on Pentecost Day. Again, we find the main thought, the leading thought of the sermon is this. Verse 34, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Well, already you see the sermon wasn't exactly the same. He didn't say that in Acts chapter 2. Although the main points of that sermon are restated in this sermon. But the packaging was different, the framing of the gospel. Because this was a message as in Acts 2, now in Acts chapter 10 to the Gentiles, a message for particular people. The Apostle Peter could bring them the same message but make it relevant to their case. Which is a very interesting observation about the gospel in general and preaching in particular. The basic truths are always the same, at least they ought to be. This is the apostolic preaching, the apostolic gospel to which we to this day are devoted along with the first Christians. But there are certain emphases that become more relevant, if I could put it that way, in a given setting. You take your gospel to a certain group of people and there might be a particular truth that you need to emphasize. And so the message is capable of adapting to a certain extent. Here, Peter was preaching to Gentiles. Even as he preached to Jews earlier on. It's the same basic message about Jesus and salvation in his name. But look how he leads with this truth. He didn't do that at Pentecost. In truth, I perceive God shows no partiality. Here is a message for Gentiles who needed to hear the gospel. He's showing them, even them, how the gospel was for them. Not for Jews only, but it was for them. Now, that wasn't something he needed to convince the Jews of. He needed to convince the Jews of something very different. Maybe they weren't saved. You see, they assumed already the gospel was for them. They were saved already. No, what he needed to convince them of was their guilt. It was by your hands and lawless deeds that the Savior's hands and his feet were pierced on that cross. But here to the Gentiles, he shows them. That God shows no favors. He's no respecter of persons. Even a Gentile might be saved. Even a Gentile might be brought into the church. Even a Gentile might say, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for me. Even me. He doesn't show favors to anyone. The gospel is for all. That's what Peter says. But in every nation, verse 35, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted By him. And this is because verse 36. The word which God sent to the children of Israel. Preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. He's Lord of all. Not of the Jews only. But also of the Gentiles. You see how it all fits together. And how this had special relevance to his hearers on that day. The gospel was for them. It was also something. I've already said this. But let me say it again. Something that. Peter himself was only just beginning to see it was also a truthful notice that he lost and that he needed to regain, which Paul needed to help him regain, as we see in Galatians chapter two. But here. Well, Peter was just beginning to learn this truth and accept it for himself. And may I just note that as a preacher like Peter, that sometimes when I am preaching to you. Well, I think that you are able to say to me that, you know, you're telling me something. I, I, I'm only just now beginning to see, but, but did you ever realize that very often it's the same for me, that I'm, I'm able to share with you in the thrill of discovery. The truth is suddenly dawning upon me, and it's hitting me with a new force. Just now I'm beginning to realize the very things I'm preaching to you. The new truth which God is showing us. Well, I'm saying preaching is often like that. And it was like that here on this day. Peter and Cornelius and all the others were coming to see what God was showing him. And so Peter preaches the good news. And the good news was this. That Jesus is Lord of all. Verse 36. He's Lord of all. And it is on that warrant that the gospel is offered to all. Really, I would say. I know I've already Spoken of a central truth. Well, let me call this the key idea. The key idea is that because Jesus is the Lord of all, the gospel is to be offered to all. It's to be preached to all. And this really was the main point of Peter's sermon to his hearers. Why is the gospel to be offered to all? Because Jesus is Lord of all. Not of the Jews only, but of the Greeks also. Peter now saw this clearly. This is a truth which... Came out very strongly, not only in his own preaching, but in what Paul uh, is saying in Romans chapter 10. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him forever calls on his name will be saved. And it is on that warrant He goes on. Verses 11 through 13. The gospel is for all. Therefore, it's to be preached to all. Verses 14 through 17. And following this, he gives an account of his earthly ministry in verses 37 and 38, a basic summary of what you find in the Gospels, especially Mark, the account of which Peter himself was likely largely responsible to that. He adds, we are witnesses. We are witnesses of what he did. It's important to remember the men who wrote the New Testament. That's what they were. They were witnesses. By the way, that's what an apostle is, an authoritative witness. And so in their preaching, they gave an account of what they saw and their testimony was true. And so he speaks of what they saw, not only of the mighty works that Jesus Christ did while he was among them, but especially of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, verses 39 and 40. We are witnesses of all the things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up. On the third day and showed him openly. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ constitute the center of the apostolic gospel or the apostolic preaching. That's the thing they preached in preaching Jesus is Lord. So they preached his death and so they preached his, his resurrection. Jesus died at the hands of men, they said. He says it here, so he said it at Pentecost. It's our sin that led to his death. It is for our sins that he died. But God raised him up. Notice the difference. He died at the hands of men. But God raised him up. That's something that man could not do for him. But God could. And as God, death could not hold him. Think again of what he says in Acts chapter 2. Of this too, Peter says, we are witnesses. God was openly showing forth that he is both Lord and Savior. He died for our sins and he was raised the resurrected Lord. That's what God was testifying about his son by raising him from the dead. That he's Lord of all precisely who he claimed to be and whom we now preach him to be. And so we preach him. Peter says by his resurrection, God has made plain this about his lordship, that he's the judge of all. All judgment has been given to him. Verse forty two. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. All must answer to him, both living and dead, Peter says. All must give an account, but as judge, he's also savior. And so Peter says we we preach his lordship, we preach his judgment and equally salvation in his name. Yes, and as the judge of all, so all who believe in him will be saved from his coming judgment. They'll be saved from his coming wrath. They will receive, Peter says, the remission of sins. He will pardon their sins and remember them no more. Not Jews only, but also Greeks and also Gentiles. And to them he will appear not so much as an awful judge bringing condemnation, but as a forgiving and merciful savior. Now, having preached that message, this apostolic gospel. What happens next is what we might call the Gentile Pentecost. Can it be the Holy Spirit has been poured out on Gentiles also? That's what they were asking these men who went along with Peter. And the answer was, yes, it really can be. Here, indeed, is a kind of mini or Gentile Pentecost or better It is an extension of Pentecost as with the Samaritans. The gospel uh, or the Pentecost event began in Jerusalem and it was reverberating throughout the world. It occurred in Samaria. Now it was occurring in Caesarea upon the Gentiles. Now the Holy Spirit was poured out and notice in every case, whether in Jerusalem, Samaria or now in Caesarea, it was at Peter's hand on this rock. I will build my church, the Lord said. And so he was for Jesus had entrusted The keys to Peter's hands. And as he opened the door wide. To the Jews and then to the Samaritans. So now he did to these Gentiles in Cornelius home. The gospel was open or or the kingdom rather was open wide to them. And so they came in as the spirit was poured out on them. But really it was not Peter, but God who did this. You see, it was as Peter was preaching. That the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And by this, God set his seal on Peter's work. And so he confirmed what he had earlier told Peter. Chapter 10, verse 15. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Here, God, uh, by the washing of regeneration, was cleansing Gentile sinners and making them fit for fellowship in the Christian church. He was establishing the communion of the saints through through regeneration. Notice what follows this. The seal, the outward seal of baptism was added. Baptism is not salvation. Baptism, I mean, with water. Baptism with the Holy Spirit is when a man is born again by the Spirit. Baptism is not salvation, but it's the seal of salvation. And so it was to these people on that day. We hear them saying, At such a time as this, when God is saving many souls, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized to have received the Holy Spirit? Just as we earlier heard with the Ethiopian, what is to prevent me from being baptized even now? Do you see the desire which both the apostles and those who were converted had to receive the sign and the seal of the covenant and thus be brought into the church? For that is what baptism is. It is our entrance into the church. It isn't just, you see, the seal of salvation, the washing of regeneration, but it is the beginnings and the entrance, our entrance into the church. The last thing that I would say is that by all of this, an important precedent is set for deciding future cases. Remember what I said, that things were not so easy. The church would continue and indeed, I think we could say the church has continued to struggle over this issue of making distinctions when God has made none. Here's the question. What we read here, is it normative? Is God settling a case for us? Is he setting a precedent that we're meant to follow? You see, that's the question that the church in the, in the early days was, was asking herself. We'll see that in chapter 11. We'll see it again in chapter 15. And really, you get the sense of it in uh, all of the epistles. The letters of the apostles. Would what happened here be normative in all future cases? Well, in chapter 11 already, as Peter returns to Jerusalem with these others, these other six men, we find him defending his actions to them. Although they objected at first and then later, more importantly, in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. So there again in Jerusalem, we find him recounting what happened there as indeed a precedent for future cases. He says this in verses 7 through 11. Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. You see, that's could we call it biblical precedent? That's how we're to decide these cases. Who is to be received into the church and on what basis? Well, here is the norm. We believe, along with Peter, at least we ought to. That through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they or We could reverse it and say they shall be saved in the same manner as we. And so we seek to put no further burden on the neck of the disciples, which God did not put there, nor were any able to bear enough for a man. You ask, what's the test of of membership in the church? And I I like to tell people, the test is, is he a Christian? It's just as simple as that. Is the man a Christian? Well, enough, Peter is saying, for a man to have faith. Whatever else is true of him. And to testify to his faith by walking in newness of life. Again, this is where the error of what I call our opponents falls away. No, you don't get to hold on to your sin. You've got to repent. You've got to turn to it. But having professed your faith in Jesus Christ and testifying to that, by the new life that he's given you. Yes. Any might come and any might have a place in the church. And such deserve to be called Christian and ought to be received by us as Christian brothers. That's the truth which God was showing to Peter in those days and to Cornelius. And I pray which he is still teaching us to this day. Amen. And let us, let us stand together now and sing as we close out our worship by singing together hymn 416. Please stand. Hymn 416.